A very good morning and a warm welcome to the 2017 Convention of the Actuarial Society. I trust you had a good start to your day and hope you'll have a good day today. As we start the convention, let us please spare a moment for the more than 300 souls that have innocently lost their lives in Mogadishu, Somalia. Let us also remember that from today is 10 days to go to the centenary celebrations of the life of Oliver Tambo. Let us use the occasion to learn the life of Oliver Tambo so that each of us can make a relevant and appropriate contribution to the social cohesion of South Africa and across the continent. If you learn about the life of Oliver Tambo, you'll know that he was quite a keen mathematician Without having opportunities, he ended up as a math teacher. And he was to later go study at Fort Hare to be a lawyer. I always keep imagining that if Oliver Tamo had opportunities back then, perhaps he would have joined the actuarial profession and became an actuary. I really hope that you have all been looking forward to this convention as I have been. As a profession, I believe that we host very good conventions. And to really appreciate the quality of the conventions we host, one, night, one just needs to go and uh, wander around and attend other industry conferences and conventions. And we'll come back very happy and wanting to hug the speakers that come to grace our conferences. <laughs> and so the speakers, if people come to hug you, please don't think it's awkward. Just give them hugs. <laughs> I'm sure all of you will agree that we can't thank our speakers enough for coming to present and sharing their knowledge with us. By convening here to share knowledge and experiences, as a collective members of the profession, leave this two-day gathering collectively stronger. I would also like to thank all of you that are in attendance. As you can see, the hall is very full. We have a record number of attendance this year at 1,504 people registering for the convention. A round of applause, please. This beats last year's convention record by one person. <laughs> so I'm glad you, you, you applauded before I tell you this. So whoever who was that last person to register, uh, well done. Thank you. You have actually set the record. We have guests uh, from all over the world, 16 countries have been uh, represented here. We have guests from the industry in South Africa as a whole where actuaries practice. And uh, some of the guests that we think deserve a special mention, and apologies if I mispronounce any of the names. We've got Radazolf Albrecht from Bitbond, Isaac Baidu from the University of Ghana, Bob Konya from the Casualty Actuarial Society, Anna Marie Dialtin from Batzeta, Carmen Foster from the Society of Actuaries of Namibia, Leanne Jackson from the Financial Services Board, Eugene Joste from ASISA, Ben Kemp from the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, Shelley Lotz, from the South African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association, Situnya Molosiwa from the Botswana Actuarial Society, 
Ismail Momoniat from the National Treasury, David Murerewa from the Electoral Society of Zimbabwe, Marjorie Ngwenya from the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, James Olubai from the Electoral Society of Kenya, Vivian Pearson from the South African Insurance Association, Musa Sibufu from the Electoral Society of Uganda, Athol Williams from Cape Town, Patrick Wayne. <laughs> no, he's actually from Cape Town, Mitchell's Plain. <laughs> Patrick Wecker from the University of Nairobi. Stephen Yaboa from the Electoral Society of Ghana. Now to some announcement, announcement and housekeeping matters, and in no particular order of importance. Tonight there is a party and a gala dinner situation. The cocktails and dinner function is this evening. It starts at 7 o'clock, so 7 p.m. It is not here. Please don't rock up here for the party uh, in this hall, but at Bryanston at the campus. There are buses that are arranged to transport delegates to and from the venue. The coaches will depart from outside the main ground floor. So just as you enter the Santin Convention Center on Maud Street, the buses will be there from 6.30 to 6.45. So you've got a tight 15-minute slot to be here to catch the ride to the campus. The coaches will return to the Santin Convention Center, and they will stop at some hotels, the Garden Court, Santin Sun, and the Santin Sun Hotel from 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. I think the idea is that you should be fresh for tomorrow's session and not stay uh, until 3 a.m. at the party. So the last coach will leave the campus at 11 p.m. If you wish to take your own car, complimentary parking is available at the campus. The recommended dress is semi-formal. And please remember to bring your cocktails, dinner, and ticket with you. You will find it inside your name tag pouch. Another announcement, there is a convention app. If you go to your app store on your device and search for ASA 2017 convention, it will pop up. It is about eight megabytes, so very quick to download. There is uh, free Wi-Fi. As you, if you check in your pamphlets, you'll find the password there. So do not uh, fail to download it on other issues. Of course, there is a help desk at the ground floor where you can get assistance if you need it with regard to the app. So this app is a very useful interactive version of the program. So the one you have in your bag should serve more as a souvenir. We really encourage you to use the app. It is going to allow you to be able to give feedback on the speakers, which is very useful in terms of uh, improving the convention from year to year. The feature will also help with CPD logging. Uh, the some sessions will have live polling, uh, where the audience will be asked to respond, and there will be a poll, and you will be using the app uh, to participate in the poll. The moderator in each of the sessions will assist with such live polling. Uh, if you are a speaker and you still like to add some questions to your session, please visit the app help desk at the speaker preparation room. Let us share the discussions at our convention and our views about this convention. 
We can use Twitter for that. If you can please take your tweets to create the discussion with hashtag ASA2017 and the Twitter handle of the Actuarial Society is at ActuarialSA. Tea breaks and lunches will be served at the exhibition hall. I'm sure you've already been there on the ground floor. So that is where all the tea and the lunch will take place. And you're invited to do visit the stands of our exhibitors there. If you have indicated that you have special dietary requirements, please notify one of the catering staff or the convention center staff. As courtesy to the convention and all speakers and attendees, let us always please remember to put our phones on silent mode as we enter the sessions. In terms of the rooms, there is a map in the booklet that you have. Uh, but just to clarify, this room is the ballroom. Ballroom two, three, and four are through the back, just opposite, uh, the back opposite of this room. The Bill Gallagher room and boardroom three. You go out those doors to your left, you'll find them there. And the committee room four is upstairs. A new addition to this convention or this program is workshops. So there are a number of workshops that would offer delegates more interactive sessions. Space is limited at these workshops, so they sit between 50 and 60 people. So you're encouraged to sign up to attend through the app or at the registration desk. This will enable the organizers to monitor the number of people attending each of those to make sure that there's space for everyone. The Developing the Skills of Inclusion workshop is repeated during each of the concurrent sessions, allowing a choice of time slots to suit everyone. Materials for the other workshops has been sent to participants in advance, so please notify the staff at registration desk if you have not received this. Now to get the convention underway, I would like to introduce Rosen, the president of the Actuarial Society. I will now call upon Rosen to come up to introduce this morning's plenary session. Rosen will talk about the building blocks that are needed to ensure that our profession is relevant for the future. Let us give her a round of applause as she comes up. Thanks, Francine, and good morning. So I'm approaching the end of my presidential term, and it's fitting for me to, at this point, present on an important and critical part or initiative that we are involved in the natural society, which, of course, is transformation. Now, I'm a bit concerned about this word transformation because I think there's a bit of fatigue associated with it. So let me start by putting out some positive words for you to attach this session to. So how about awakening, revitalizing, renovating, improving, enlightening, humanizing? Yes, we are a profession of human beings, but we're a profession of diverse human beings, diverse in our gender, in our cultures, in our religions, in our languages, our family structures, 
our educational backgrounds and our priorities and values. But if we can facilitate the blending of the thoughts and ideas from this diverse group of people, we're going to be much better and in a much better position to deliver on our professional promise to the diverse South African public that we serve. This is what transformation means to me. But we must not lose sight of why we do what we do. And now I'd like to really change the slide. There we go. I believe that it is very important that we play a role in contributing to making the National Development Plan a reality. This is not just a task for the regulators or public service organizations, and I think it's important that we start thinking about actors working in public service, but it is a task for all of us. I'd like to suggest that the plan, the National Development Plan, is actually compulsory reading for all of us, because we need to understand the context of why it is what we do, and we need to apply our minds to how we can contribute both individually and in terms of the organizations that we're working for. So, the aim of this session is to revitalize the way you think about the topic of transformation. Not too ambitious, then. I really think that it's critically important that all of us, no matter what our background, shed our preconceived notions about what this belabored transformation term means. We need to embrace this concept of renovating our thinking about this space. So the way this session is going to work is that I'm going to start by giving you a sense of some of the transformation initiatives that we've been engaged in in the actual society to date. Some of the victories and some of the challenges that we've encountered along the way. Then Adrian is going to talk, tell you a little bit about the modeling that we've been doing um, in terms of understanding where the profession is going demographically and to try and get a sense of what we should be aiming for. On that foundation, and with Nene's help, I'm going to challenge you to revitalize how you think about transformation and how it can become a critical part of your everyday activities. I'm going to open your eyes, hopefully, to some of the obstacles that you're probably not even aware of in approaching your tasks from day to day. So Council has identified five key strategic themes that drive us. Transformation is at the top of this list. But I want to show you how it, in, in, it informs all the other themes that we're working on. So first of all, research. We've worked on creating more platforms for members to share research. And you have a third issue of the South African Actuary in your hands. Well, maybe not in your hands, but certainly in your bags. This makes a range of topics much more accessible. And I'm going to show you the results of the work that Dave Strugnell and his team have been working on. And Arjun's going to present that to you shortly. We've been extending the demographic projection model to understand where the membership of the profession has been going, and this has been an, is going, and that's an important part of, um, of, of our research initiatives. And then education. We're in a transition process to the new curriculum, and this gives us an opportunity to add some more local flavor while still preserving the internationally accredited standards of our education program. I prefer to talk about Africanization rather than decolonization, because it's a more positive term. It's about what it is rather than what it is not. This is an important process in recognizing that there are African actuarial themes that need to be incorporated and celebrated. And I'd really like to thank the willingness of the volunteers who have made this project already be in progress. 
We've also been doing some work on the designations that the Actuarial Society offers as part of our syllabus change process that is underway. And it's an important part of making our profession accessible and also recognizing that there's a wide variety of roles that members of this profession are engaged with. Then communication. Well, the stakeholder survey that we conducted earlier this year has been an eye-opener as far as the need for us to be visible is concerned. As a profession, our technical strength and our integrity are very highly regarded, but we need to be a lot more active in communicating our strategic objectives, and this is what I'm doing now, so please take note. The intention here is for all of you, as members of the profession, to embrace this vision and to share it with the stakeholders that you're engaging with, to be more visible. Volunteers. Well, the work of ASA is dependent on the commitment of the volunteers. This is both our strength, but also our key risk. Our structures in terms of the boards and the committees that we, that we have in, our, um, in the society is how we get things done. And the things I'm talking about here are regulatory development, developing our standards, developing the education material, and addressing current topics. I've been engaging with these structures to encourage greater diversity in the voices that are participating there. And work is underway in reviewing the terms of reference and expanding the access to, to these structures to a broader range of volunteers. So I really want to encourage you to get in active and to get involved. This will make our voice much more relevant and ensure that we are building a sustainable profession as we move forward. As I said before, transformation of who we are and how we think is more than just about how we look. It needs to be inculcating everything that we do. And then there is the public interest. This is the key component of our professional promise. We are trusted to ensure fairness, accuracy, and the mitigation of risk. We are acting for a diverse public, and we need to under properly understand what their needs are to make sure that we are addressing their needs. But is this enough? At the session where Shivani and Dave presented at the convention last year about molding future actuaries, we heard that there are very real impediments to achieving meaningful transformation in our profession. And we need to be partnering with employers to make real improvements. This has led to a number of engagements, including sessionals and various council members engaging with a broad range of stakeholders to understand these concerns and these challenges. We've tried to create some space for difficult conversations to take place. During the session last year and the sessional subsequent, we've heard of frustrations and concerns. I'm going to give you a small sample with my emphasis added. And you may not share these experiences, but I hope that you can recognize that they're very real to the people who have shared them with us. I'm going to let you read these so that you can take them in. There are a number of concepts that are critical here. Dignity and respect and a willingness to look at things from the perspective of someone else. And this applies to everyone here, the fellows and associate members of the profession and the aspirant actuaries across all backgrounds. We need to walk a mile in someone else's shoes to really get a perspective of how they feel rather than just new footwear. So let me build up to tackling some of these concerns by bringing you up to speed with some of our activities. I hope that you're going to find it useful to know about the things we're doing, and hopefully you'll feel a little bit of pride in what our profession is busy with, but mostly I hope that it's going to enable you to understand the society structures a little bit better, 
and to understand what we are doing so that you can contribute with your own suggestions and maybe also some time as well. This is all work, work in progress at the moment, so we need all the help we can get. So when we consider the path to qualification as an actuary, or maybe I should say the long and winding road, it's difficult to say exactly when it starts. There's a dire need for us to improve maths education at school level and to make sure that learners are stimulated to excel at maths and are aware of the opportunities that exist for them in the careers of science, technology, engineering, and maths. I'm just struggling to change the slide again. And again. The Actual Society Education Trust exists because of donations from individual members of the profession and has a key partner in the paper video program. We're making excellent strides in terms of the delivery of math support to learners and to teachers, which of course is, means that we are creating a more sustainable um, situation in disadvantaged communities in terms of encouraging maths education. So let's get an update from the paper video program. At Paper Video, we have spent the last three years creating resources that allow South African high school learners to gain instant access to excellent teachers. By embedding over 10,000 video lessons directly into past exam papers and workbooks, we've made it possible for learners across the country to turn their phone into their own personal teacher. Getting the lesson you need when you need it has become as easy as scan, watch and learn. And by using micro SD cards to make it possible for learners to enjoy our resources without needing an internet connection or data, we are well on the path to ensuring that no learner gets left behind. But all of this innovation would mean nothing if we couldn't get our resources to the learners who need them most, the learners who cannot take opportunities and resources for granted. Since 2015, Paper Video has been working alongside the Actuarial Society of South Africa towards the sponsorship of our resources for learners in the greatest of need. And thanks to the donations that have been made to the Actuarial Society Education Trust by ASA members and Corporate South Africa, we have been able to roll out our resources to over 12,000 students from low-income backgrounds. That's 12,000 students who, for the first time in their lives, were able to experience the privilege of having an extra teacher available to them anytime, any place. Is everything to me. It made me to be in this position that I am in. I never thought about studying a degree of mathematics, but now I am studying it. I was just there, the people that used to just pause. So they happy because I'm glad I just made it, but now it boosts my marks, it made me confident to see that now I now know I can pause mathematics, I do have the ability to get there. I'm a living proof that paper video works. I matriculated trade 12, you know, with a beautiful maths mark, you know. And then I believe, I believe, I strongly believe that paper video is a very, very big influence on my marks, you know, because to be quite honestly, that's the only resources I had. It worked amazingly, actually. I, I can't actually explain how it was because it was that good. I would advise every student to make use of this resource because it really does help you a lot, especially when you're struggling with a specific topic in, in a subject. In maths and science, uh, paper video helped me a lot. Uh, as a result, uh, for physical sciences, I got uh, 100%. As a result of my achievements, 
a lot, a lot of companies have approached me, like PPS, Old Mutual, uh, Mutsepe Foundation, and I think uh, everything is working out. You know, our results uh, took a uh, upward hike. Uh, we were, we are dependent on, on paper video now as it is. Paper video is the best invention of the 21st century. It's a game changer for mathematical, for mathematics students and mathematics teachers. I can't wait to see more of it. We have been chosen as the most improved technical high school in the Western Cape. Paper video must take and deserve a huge part of the credit. I almost want to say the lion's share of the credit. We want to be the best technical high school in, in our country. Paper video is the key. Without the Actuarial Society of South Africa, the Actuarial Society Education Trust, and the generous donations by ASA members and corporate South Africa, we would never have been able to impact the lives of so many learners and teachers across the country. And so, to all ASA members and the corporates that have donated to the Actuarial Society Education Trust, we say, Thank you. You have made this all possible. We need to make great teaching resources available to our children now. And we can do that through paper video. We can make uh, fantastic teaching available to every child in our country immediately. All we need is some investment. So Business of Africa, please invest in paper video. Our children need this. Thanks very much. Isn't that a winning combination of passion and technology? And I really want to thank everyone who has um, made contributions to the Actuarial Society Education Trust. We're all debtors to our profession, so it's important that we give generously. And Vim has asked me to mention that even though it shouldn't be a deciding factor, tax certificates are issued and your donations are tax deductible. So it's a challenging time as well for university education in South Africa, and I'm really pleased that our profession is applying its skills to developing funding frameworks for university studies. We also have excellent partners in the South African Actuaries Development Program and ASABA who are providing valuable support and mentorship to university students. The ISA ADP program has supported over 480 students over the past 14 years, and over 30 of those have qualified to date. I'd really also like to make mention of the enthusiastic Asaba leadership who are so committed to passing on their own experiences to encourage and support those that are coming after them. And then we have the ASA Academy. The objective of the ASA Academy is to increase the number of black South African actuaries. It aims to enable every employed student to receive quality education in a facilitated environment that promotes academic ex excellence, developing actuarial knowledge, acquiring appropriate business skills, and also personal development. It's important to note that the Academy reports to Council and to the Transformation Committee. It's not an external structure, and it's run from the ASA office. The Academy has been a key area of focus for us, and it's hard to believe that it was only launched at the beginning of last year. We have learned some important lessons along the way here, but we've learned about what helps and, and, what, um, and what doesn't. We've had some early wins that we're really proud of, but there's still a lot of work to do. 
But again, all of this is only due to the commitment of the volunteers. This is not even possible without the volunteers, like Lisani Malozzi, who has so willingly taken on the role of principal, and other academics and education volunteers who make presentations and provide input and act as sounding boards. All the kind of inspiring enthusiasm which is consistent with our transformation theme. So let me tell you a little bit about the things that the Academy has been doing so far. So first of all, the induction program. This is a two-day session which aims to prepare newly employed student members for the workplace. 36 students attended the pilot program at the beginning of 2016, and after increased support from the actuarial training officers, we saw this number increase to 61 this year. And then when it comes to the technical subjects and tuition, research by the Transformation Committee has shown that many black students graduate with fewer exemptions than their white, white counterparts. This has an impact on things like their starting salary, their opportunities for promotion, and also the time taken to qualify. To support these students, programs have been provided for the subjects which have shown to present the greatest obstacles. For the A200 subjects, we introduced a distance learning program which includes face-to-face -face sessions. This was done in partnership with the University of the Free State. While support included face-to-face -face sessions, pass rates for these subjects were between 6 and 18% higher than the rate for those subjects. And in 2017, 53 students participated in the program. You may also be aware that we've commissioned YouTube support videos for the A204 subject in 2016, and these are still available online. Also, an exam preparation session for a pilot group of F105 candidates um, was, will be held later this week, and for F106 candidates was held last month. Feedback from this session is being analyzed, and we're probably going to introduce a fully-fledged support program for F106. The Academy has also issued a list of command verbs, those question words that you get in examinations, for, to all students through the actual training offices. And so this shows that the, the work that the Academy is doing, the initiatives, is um, improving support across our whole uh, student base. So hopefully this is going to provide everyone the opportunity to reach the standards that are required in our profession. So moving on to looking at the work that's been done to support the higher subjects. First of all, communications. I'd say this is the, our greatest area of success. It was the first subject where we had an intervention. And um, in October 2015, the pass rate for African students sitting the communication subject was only 9%, 9%. The pass rates for African Academy students in 2016 and 2017 were 36.5% and 67% respectively. These programs also provide valuable workplace skills. Then with A301, which is the, um, the, the, the stumbling block subject because of its size, we introduced an A301, introduction to A301 course at the end of last year, and saw academy ca candidates having a pass rate some 6% higher than the pass rate for all candidates, and African academy candidates achieving a pass rate 10% higher. We then introduced a more structured program with boot camps, and this took a full nine days in total in the second semester. 36 students have participated in this program, and a separate workshop with examiners was also um, arranged as part of their preparation. I've been advised to expect outrageous success when the results are released later this year. And then the mentorship program. Members of the society were invited to volunteer as either mentors or mentees, and a professional service provider has offered workshops uh, to the respondents. 
We've had a bit of a meet and match session where, in Johannesburg, and those who weren't able to attend that session were paired up online. Sounds a bit like dating. There was 38 students and 41 mentors who participated in the program. And a fresh call for volunteers will be issued next year. A social and motivational event is also planned actually for next week. Also some other plans in terms of um, the work that the academy is doing. First of all, in the modeling course, the modeling boot camp will be held later this month. And this will be the first of a, a pilot group, which is going to test a program which has been developed after extensive analysis of the exam papers. And it's probably going to be followed up with an Excel um, boot camp as well for attendees. And then in terms of the cognitive piece, research has shown that to address the articulation gap shown by actual science students between school and university, and how this appears to perpetuate through the degree and into the workplace. There's a particular challenge for African students, particularly in the later examinations where the questions require the students to argue, to discuss and explain, and of course all of this is in English. So we've started with an online pilot program which has been launched in partnership with UCT, and this is expected to be rolled out to a wider audience later. Essentially, this intervention is aimed at addressing, um, assisting the students in developing ways and techniques of learning and thinking through tasks, which will enable them to think more expansively and actively engage with the content that they are studying. So this should hopefully assist, in it, uh, uh, assist African students in obtaining more exemptions at the university level. And finally, on the examination preparation side, candidates sitting the F200 um, examinations this semester will have the opportunity to attend a breakfast with Dave, Shivani, and Lusani later this week. These experienced educators will provide useful hints and suggestions on approaching the F200 papers. So I hope this gives you a sense of what we have been doing and hopefully also some inspiration about where you can fit in to some of these initiatives as well. But so far, over 200 students have been touched by the activities that we've done already. And these are our future qualifiers. It's also clear that the need is more than simply providing education support. It's been a good place to start to make a real difference. And the Transformation Committee is a key structure in terms of collaboration and coordination, both with internal and external stakeholders who are involved in this important transformation work. For the last three years, the Transformation Committee has reported directly to Council with the President-elect as chair. So this task will soon be passing from Peter to Lasani. We've also been actively engaging with the chairs of the various practice areas and boards across the structures of the society to seek ways that a diversity appears in terms of the agendas and in terms of the voices who are contributing at the table in the discussions. It's important that the content of the discussions that takes place in these various structures takes account of the diverse public that we serve. We are a profession of individuals rather than entities but we do have influence when it comes to addressing the kind of challenges that members have identified with the actuarial training officers. This has been part of our engagements and in terms of enabling workplaces where our members are feeling welcomed and inspired to succeed. This engagement has also included the employment professionals who are involved with the actuarial profession in terms of placements and of insight into what is happening at the coalface, so to speak. And also thinking about how our leadership is structured and how it is selected. This is the hearts and minds challenge. How we think about what we do, both in how we work, how we work with each other, and how we deliver on our professional promise. 
So the plan is for these in interventions to increase the rate of progress through the exams and so to increase the diversity of our qualifiers. But what will this look like and how are we going to measure it? So I'd like to move on to the second part of this session, which is about the demographics of what we look like. As actuaries, when faced with the need to consider complex relationships, lots of parameters, what do we do? We build a model. The Transformation Committee has been working for quite some time on a demographic projection model, but more recently a team headed by Dave Strugnell has been working, has been working with added vigor and rigor and adding more parameters. This gives us a good sense of what we can expect and also the extent to which we can stretch ourselves. We need to understand what good looks like. So I'm going to introduce you to Adrian Rowan. He's an actuary who was qualified in 2012 and has worked across a range of companies, including Old Mutual, Deloitte, and Genry. And he's also done some consulting work for the World Bank, covering pensions, life, and microinsurance. When not traveling in, in Africa, he enjoys finding new and innovative ways of solving problems, which is why he's currently doing his master's at UCT in data analytics. Adrian has told me that after working on this demographic modeling project, he has much more appreciation for all the volunteer work that is done by members of society, and that's what keeps it running as professionally as it does. So, Adrian, I hope you feel inspired to contribute, and we look forward to hearing about the work you've done so far. Thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you, everybody. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the results of the ASA demographic profile model. This has been a joint project between uh, Dave Strugnell and myself, but it would not have been possible without the input um, of Michelle Abrams and Wim Els at ASA, and the input of the ASA um, Transformation Committee members who gave feedback on our results. So I want to give thanks for their patience and support. And I also want to say thank you to Ursula Tor for allowing me to use January's server and computer on which I did the modeling. The model tries to answer two questions. First, looking back, what are the factors that are influencing historic qualification rates? A detailed analysis of these factors allows ASA to determine the drivers of high and pass low rates, uh, pass rates and therefore identify the ways it can, we can intervene and improve it accordingly. So these are the sort of things that fits into all the interventions that we've seen now um, and allows us to identify even further ways that ESSA can intervene to improve um, pass rates. The second, and looking forward, is we want to be able to project how the profession will look like under various scenarios in 10 years' time. Therefore, we want to combine the historic pass rates um, with which students qualify and which students and fellows leave the profession, with the current membership profile and the profile of new joiners. And yes, there are fellows who leave the profession and not just those who go overseas. If you are happy with these rates, if you are happy with these rates and the profile of the new members for different race groups, it will allow us to get a reasonably accurate view of how the professional profession's future demographic profile will look like. And for this, we don't need to know the actual drivers of the rates. We just need to know how the rates vary by duration and race. So it is at the same time an easier and more complex problem than the first model. So before we look at the results, just some background on the data. 
And as we all know, getting the data right is unfortunately 80%, takes 80% of the time. So the re results that I'm showing today are based on only the ASA database um, of past students and members and doesn't include any university data. Um, this is a further development um, so um, we're, that we'll be working on in the future to improve our model, um, so please bear this in mind um, when looking at results. Then the modeling is for the time from a student to qualify from the date of graduating, not from joining ASA. Graduating and joining is slightly different, but the impact over the large term is very small. Graduation is the year in which you get your first degree or your honors where that is applicable. And then duration is the time from graduating to either qualifying as a fellow or leaving the profession. And for those members who have qualified, duration is the time from your date of qualification to when you leave the profession. We've also grouped the five race groups that is on the, um, the ASA database into three with African and colored uh, groups combined and Asian and Indian members combined. This is done because the data for colored and Asian groups is at the moment too scarce, and from the data that we do have, the qualification rates within these two groupings are very similar, so it allows us to still give an accurate projection. As mentioned at the start, our first goal was to understand the drivers of historic pass rates. And for this, a Cox proportional hazard model was fitted to the data available. From this, we can see that qualification rates do not differ significantly by gender. Remember, this is for people who already have an actuarial university degree. As Dave found in the work that he did last year, gender is significant when determining whether a person gets a degree in the first place. Qualification rates do vary by university. But I was not able to find a reason for why this is the case, and this factor was not used in the projection model. But it will be analyzed further once we have university data. Then, um, from what we could see, the number of exemptions you have when you leave university is also critical. But the completeness of the exemption data uh, was not good enough to allow us to use it in the modeling. We suspect this is because people only apply for their exemptions when they have jobs, and there are also those who never qualify who often don't bother to register their exemptions. So again, this is the area of future work. Then last, and most significantly, the most significant factor driving historic qualification rates is race. So how do qualification rates vary by race? The results that I'll show on the next slide has been calculated using a Kaplan-Meier estimate. So the lower, and this is important when I show the results, the lower your Kaplan-Meier rate, or the lower the curve, the more likely you are to qualify. The results are only for members born in 1978 or later, in order to reflect only the most recent experience. And then um, the pass rate, therefore, is only uh, or the duration that we've modeled it is only for 17 years because that's the only time we have since 1978 born people up to now. These are the results. As you can see, around 60% of white actual degree holders end up qualifying as an actuary. 
and they qualify on average eight years after getting a degree. But for the other groups, less than half of everybody who ever gets an actual degree ever become fellows. As I said, more work will be done in this model um, and we'll report on this in the future. Our second goal was to model the expected profile of the profession in 10 years time. And for this we used a transition probability model to allow for the movement of members between different states or classes which are student, fellow or leavers. Within each class we then also have the different race groups. We did, that model, we did not model the associates separately and members are taken as the current active members younger than 65 years old. So sorry for the people who are older than that, you have been excluded, but you're still members. Um, so to run the model, we need three pieces of information. We need transition rates uh, by duration between the different groups. We need the profile of new joiners, and we need the current active membership profile. To model the transition rates, we used a GAM, or a generalized additive model. Now this is similar to a GLM, but it allows for the automatic addition of splines and penalty terms to give, um, to allow for non-linear and smoothed rates to be modeled. We created a model um, for duration zero to eight years, and which is only based on, on the data for members born in 1978 or later. Then we created a separate model for duration nine plus years, which is modeled in four-year age bands and, is, and up to duration 20, and is based on all the data available to us. Therefore, there will be a slight transition point when I show the results in the next slide at duration nine, which we did not smooth out. The last thing to remember before showing the transition rate results is that our base assumption is that the results will merge toward the white rates over a 10 year period um, of the projection. Now this is a key and potentially contentious assumption. Therefore we did test alternative scenarios with alternative assumptions to see the impact of this assumption on the results and I'll show the results of that later in the presentation. So, the first set of results. This shows the student to fellow rates by the three different race groups. At the bottom is duration from getting your degree onwards um, until you um, become a fellow. And on the left hand side is the probability in every given duration of becoming an actuary. And the probability goes from 0% up to 12%. And you can see the difference between the different groups and also the slight inversion point at duration nine. Now you can also see how over the 10 year period we are assuming the rates merge together towards the white rates. Next, we looked at the transition from student to lever, again by duration. And in this time the probability goes up from zero to 15%. Now you'll see the very high rate uh, for the Indian group um, from duration 10 onwards or 11 onwards. Um, the first thing to bear in mind is that it is based on very little data, so it might not be credible, but this is the result of the model. 
but also bear in mind that this is for um, only in the tail of the distribution, so the assumption isn't that significant on the overall results. With that said, this is something that we will be investigating and to understand better um, going forward. The transition over 10 years looks as follows. So this is of the 10 year where the rates will be, but the model allows for the change over the 10 years. And then lastly, the rates for fellows leaving the profession looks like this. In this case, by the end, there's only a 1% probability of an actuary leaving the profession. These are the transition probabilities, and they have a significant impact on the results. Um, so, the next thing to, so this is the first one to look at. Then, the last piece of actuarial assumption making, and the part that requires a statutory actuary's left thumb, is the results of the new, join, uh, is the new joiner profile. As shown in this graph, the profile of new members have been improving over the last 10 years. Um, last seven years, with more and more black students getting an actuarial degree and joining um, ASA. The question is whether this rate could be extrapolated and if the African and colored groups will continue to increase beyond 40% of new, uh, new entrants. We assume that it would, based on the limited university data that we have available that shows the profile of the new intakes into university. And we made the assumption that in 10 years time, 54% um, of new members will be um, African or colored. It is also assumed that the percentage female new joiners would increase from the current 35% to 40%. Lastly, we assumed that the new members would continue to grow from 280 to reach 300 in 2028. Now, for, the, for people like me who did my honors in 2004, this looked like a very surprising result. But in 2015, ASA already had more than 280 new members joining every year. So where are we now? And based on these assumptions, where will we be in 2028? Based on the membership data available to us, there's a total of 3,000 184 members of ASA. And the memberships are, membership is mostly white and mostly male. Allowing for new members joining and the rate of leaving, in 10 years time, we expect to have 5,050 members. Now, the proportion of females are expected to increase from 29% to 34%, and the percentage of um, black members are expected to increase from 44% to 55%, with African members in particular increasing from 24% to 36%. Obviously, this is very dependent on our assumptions regarding the profile of new joiners and leavers. Now, looking at the results for current fellows, and we can see it's even more white and more male. Allowing for new members joining and the rates of leaving and qualifying as fellows, 
in 10 years time we expect to have 2,426 fellows. The proportion of females are expected to increase from 24% to 30%. And the percentage black members are expected to increase from 21% to 42%. With African members increasing from 6% to 23%. So these are the, um, so as I said, these results are very um, dependent and sensitive to the assumption that we make that the rates will merge with the white pass rates over 10 years time. Therefore we recalculate the results based on three alternative scenarios. The first is that it would be a quicker pace of equalization. The second is a slow pace of equalization over 20 years. And then the last case is no equalization so that the status quo remains. And the results look as follows. Firstly, if there is no, if there's no transition or equalization, the number of fellows decrease to 2,150. So roughly 300 decrease. But we can also be seen here, if no equalization occurs, the number of black fellows will only increase to 34% instead of 52%, only increase to 34% instead of 42%. So that's a big, big reduction. Then the number of African members in particular will only increase to 17% instead of the 566 that's projected in the base case. <coughs> Lastly, because we didn't model the female transitions rates explicitly, because it's assumed to be similar, the female proportion of the, um, portion of the model is not very significant or sensitive to the equalization rate. The model has scope for improvement, and more data can be collected and more factors included. Most specifically is bringing in all the university data and including that in the model. This is something that the Transformation Committee will be working on in the future and in the following few months. But the model does give us a benchmark against which to measure the scope of action that must be taken and allow us to determine if our actions are effective in changing the status quo. Thank you for listening, for me, for listening to me and back to Roseanne. Thanks, Arjun. Being under 65, I do feel somewhat included, although I was born before 1978. But this is really valuable in terms of keeping track of how our initiatives relating to tra transformation, demographic transformation, are working. It's so important for us to get a sense of what this good looks like. But what we need to do is so much more than this. Council has articulated our transformation strategy as being about fairness and inclusion. It's about feeling welcomed and inspired to succeed. And it is directly linked to our professional promise. Arjun has told us that if we address the differences in transition rates, being the progress through the exams, we can increase our projection of black African actuaries by 2028 
to 566 actuaries. If we weren't able to improve these transition rates, that projection might only be 354 on the basis of the status quo. And if we're able to achieve a more rapid improvement, it could go up to 635. Furthermore, we can be targeting 1,000 black actuaries on the broader racial definition over the next decade. I'm anxious that you recognize that when we talk about the objective here as increasing the number of black actuaries rather than talking about percentages, this does link to our strategic state statement of wanting everyone to feel welcomed and inspired to contribute. Going back to my original reference to what, why we do what we do, I really believe that every bright, willing, innovative actuary in South Africa, regardless of race, culture, or gender, has the ability to contribute to making the NDP objectives a reality for all of us. So, with that said, let's move on to the challenge. We've asked our young members to comment on some tricky concepts. Rather than me tell you what they said, let's hear it from them. Privilege involves opportunities in the hands of one person which are not shared by another. Knowing better or being in a position of knowing better. Someone who is advantaged in one way or another. So someone who has got an upper hand in one field or yeah, just had someone else advantage in one way or another. Yeah. What you do with that information is, is entirely up to you. Because people are in a certain group or certain classification, they have more advantages than any other person just because you're in that group. Basically, your unearned benefits. Some benefits that you didn't work for, that you inherited maybe from your grandparents or from your line age. You're comparatively better than other people just based on what you got born with. Let's say two people equally education and the one just have an advantage from money, wealth. So a good example for me is just going to a Model C school. I think that gives you exposure to other professions that you could do, that's how I find myself in the actuarial profession. Amongst people that you're competing with or working with, you already come at a point of advantage. That person is privileged just to have that access that someone in the same position does not have access to. You're treated better than others. Better contacts with people to help you along your career. I'm not judged, uh, or rather I'm, I'm given a chance without proving myself. Not because of anything that you have acquired, not because of merit, but because of who you are and maybe where you've been. There are people that I know that have helped me secure certain positions, and it's helped me. I grew up in a family, and sometimes your parents treat you differently from other people, so that's, that's a privilege. I guess it means having some type of advantage inherent to you beyond others, uh, without really having to do anything to uh, obtain that, that advantage. Privilege is having a roof over your head which you can lock up and feel safe. The only advantage or benefit that you gain on the basis of a position that you declare or even your slag or your race, that can help more come. Privilege is having a job. It's having a car to drive yourself to work every day and owning the car. Sometimes by being in a higher social economic class than other people, uh, which can make you go to university and make you go to, to certain schools which other people might not actually go there. To actually get easier access to a workplace or environment just by knowing someone 
even een positie wat je bekleed in een maatschappij of enig iets wat net een voordeel vir jou biedt op grond van ek weet nie, jou menswees of even net waar jy thans in jou leven is. That person is privileged just to have that access that someone in the same position does not have access to. One of the best examples of unconscious bias, the mixture of cultures that come together, even if it's something as simple as an accent. You don't treat something or someone fairly, but you're unaware of it. It's stuff that just makes more sense to us and we can, we can recognize it and we therefore think it's more correct than anything else. Unconscious bias causes us to um, disregard their opinions um, and not listen to what they're saying just because they might not be as eloquent. These perceptions that your brain makes for you that you don't understand, that you're not aware of. Decisions are made based on certain stereotypes without being aware that you're making that decision. I mean, sometimes you find yourself judging someone and making like, conclusions about someone even though you've got no experience um, with that person. It's the perception that you have of someone just by looking at them. You literally just favor something that looks like you. I think also as black people we are unconsciously biased, males, also females. A preconceived idea or opinion you have in your mind that you might be unaware of. People don't have enough information about you, so as a result they just conclude. And it's often influenced by your environmental um, conditions, your culture, your personal experiences giving less favor to an option um, as a result of some type of mechanism that's subconscious. Sometimes you look at people and you think you know their whole story. It's an automatic response which um, results in you selecting a certain option that you did not necessarily inherently choose. Yes, these are someone from a wealthy background, they're happy, they've got everything that they need. So from a poor background, they really need a lot of help or they're unhappy. You might employ or employ males or promote males more than females because you feel that they make better leaders um, because that might just be your experience. If you're black, they assume certain things about you. If you're white, they assume certain things about you. So it's stuff that we actually live with right now. Personally, I haven't experienced it myself yet. I've definitely experienced a fair share of discrimination. I'm expecting to experience it at some point. A lot of it was based on unconscious um, biases where I kind of see that someone looks at me different based on my race or um, based on the way I speak or where I'm coming from. Particularly because I'm working in the corporate South Africa and from the experience that I've heard, it does happen. It does exist, but as been, I guess I'm privileged enough to not have gone through it, but yeah, I'm fortunate enough to have gone through it. Discrimination does definitely exist even uh, in a professional environment. When you interact with people sometimes, they, like, I think it comes down to the unconscious bias thing. Some people look at you and like when you speak because if you're a black female, they don't take you as seriously in comparison if someone comes up and they're a white male, for example. A, a lot more is being done to combat discrimination than, than might have been done in the past. Done very subtly, very unconsciously. I have experienced it and I've seen it as well. I think it's utterly disgusting and I think it's about how we name and shame these people. Ideally, we have to address it quite frankly call it out but respectfully. I actually haven't, which is interesting. Maybe that's privilege, you know, because I've been privileged to actually go to places where I actually haven't seen that. But it's a bit difficult to um, 
decipher what is exactly uh, honest and true with social justice warriors all over social media. I feel that sometimes my input is not as valuable, it's not as heard or as communicated as clearly in comparison to other white male. But I do believe in the South African context there's definitely uh, discrimination that takes place, uh, or, or at least took place previously. We need to have unity as a profession where you don't look at my colour, you look at what I bring to the table, you give me a fair chance, whether I'm white or black, Indian or colour. Well, I hope something resonated with you there. I really want to thank all of those um, young members who participated in that video because having these conversations is so helpful. I want to try and make it very real for you. Have you ever walked into a meeting or perhaps even into the bathroom and stumbled upon a conversation that was very obviously about you. I know I have. You know by the sudden silence, the awkward sidelong glances, that your presence has stunted the conversation. It's not a nice space to be in. But we're doing this all the time. We're doing it to others, and I mean all of us. Whatever your race or gender, I'm 100% sure that you have been doing this to others. It's not easy to stop or even to be aware of. And this is the conversation we need to be having. So to help us think about this and what we need to be talking about, I'd like to introduce Nene Molefi. She is Jobo born and bred, but has extensive experience and qualifications in the field of change management. So before I call her up, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Nene. Her interest in the field of change and transformation began during her 10-year tenure at Eskom. This provided her with the opportunity to have great exposure to change management processes both within South Africa and abroad. And it also led to her secondment to the Department of Labor to head the Human Resources Directorate during the time when South Africa was developing legislation aimed at transforming the labor market. She later took on the position of Executive Director of Transformation for the city of Cape Town, where her role was over to, to oversee the amalgamation and rationalization of various municipalities into one and to ensure an inclusive culture for all. She's also worked on a transformation project within the South African judiciary and has done work for various South African embassies across the globe. She was part of a 42-member global panel coordinated from New York, which developed the Global Diversity Benchmarks, which is a practical and systemic tool for diversity benchmarks in organizations. She is a non-executive director of companies listed on the JSE, and she also sits on the advisory board of the Auditor General of South Africa. She's a committed social entrepreneur and her community involvement includes chairperson of the Mtumbo Thizwe Children's Organization. This is an initiative aimed at instilling a sense of dignity and developing ethical leaders for the future of South Africa. Nene, we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to have you here to guide us through what this transformation means for us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rosen, um, and thank you. I want to say thank you to Guy and Abulele, who initially invited me and um, helped me with the context for what I'll be talking about. Um, I have it on good record that sometimes it's a good idea to read someone's CV after they speak, not before, just so to check whether what is written there will be in alignment. Um, but thank you so much. I want to share with you really what I have uh, collected as, as, as knowledge, as experience, um, as talking to various people in working through many organizations. Okay, so I'll be touching on um, a few pointers 
you might be surprised why am I talking what is diversity. It's important to say, are we on the same wavelength with some of the terminology? Uh, what is inclusion and unconscious bias? I think the video has done my job, uh, actually. And then um, an important aspect called micro inequities and microaggressions that I think we need to touch on. I actually saw um, a few familiar faces from some of my client groups, uh, discovery and so on, people. So you can close your eyes. You've heard some of your ears. You've heard some of the things that I'm going to say. Um, so I think it's important when I talk about uh, diversity. First of all, there are, you can Google. There are a million definitions of what diversity is. The one that I find helpful is that diversity is a collective mixture of differences and similarities and related tensions and complexity. Do you agree that diversity has complexity and tensions? It's not just about differences and similarities. Therefore, it's also important to talk about the dimensions of diversity. The one I want to start with is diversity of personality and diversity of thought. We usually forget to talk about diversity of personality. Why is paramount for me? Because I've got two children, one an extrovert and one an introvert. I see it every day that if you forget to to identify this as a measure of diversity, you might actually uh, misinterpret certain things. Um, the second one is diversity um, of age, gender, the ones that we often talk about, race, sexual orientation. That gray and the blue line are called those that we were born with. Then you have diversity of different things that we acquired. No one was born an actuary. No one. Uh, we, you became one. No one was born a parent, you know. So what we do is that those things that we acquired that categorize us into some sort of diversity. And then you also have diversity of life experience. You know, I might go through, I might be exactly the same with uh, another black woman, but I've gone through particular life experience that's similar to Guy, even if he's white male. So it might put us in the same category of life experience. So these multiple levels of diversity it's important whenever we talk about diversity to say it represents all this. In fact, section nine of our constitution in chapter two out outlines that no one is allowed to discriminate directly or indirectly based on race, gender, country of origin, A, whether you are short, you are tall, that whole thing, that diversity is all that. However, would you agree with me that in South Africa and in the US, I do a lot of workshops both there, that even if I've shown you that diversity is all that, do you agree that race is one of the most emotive ones? Do you agree? Regardless of, show, I'll show you all that, say it's diversity, but race somehow is quite emotive. I, I work a lot in the private schools right now, and I can tell you whenever a school is on the first page of uh, Sunday Times or whatever, it has a lot to do with race. And I want to emphasize this, that Whenever I approach the, the subject of diversity, all of this is important. However, a few years ago, I was listening to John Roby. I like using this example because it's so clear in my head. And uh, while he was still a talk show host at 702, and he said, you know, today is a Friday. South Africans, everything, you make everything into politics and race. I'm a bit fluey. I'm tired. Can we have a light subject? Uh, so today we're going to talk about walking the dogs. Now, I've worked enough in this field. I was driving to a client. I laughed already. Caller number one, 
the first caller says, and John Robbie said, you heard my example, you heard my explanation. He says, I heard exactly what you said, John. What I want to explain to you, though, is that those dogs bark only at black people. <laughs> if, you know, just go listen to the radio. Just listen to the people who are ordinary citizens who are not like you and I, who don't sit like this in conferences and talk about the subject. Just ordinary citizens and listen to the radio, listen to their narrative. So for me, I often advise leaders to say, it's never a good idea to go on your road shows, the CEOs who go on road shows or have town hall meetings, to say it's never a good idea to say, let's not talk about race. It's like I say to you, don't think of a pink cow right now. Guess what you are doing right now? <laughs> so there are certain things you can't just start and say, let's not talk about race. It is real. It is a, I know it's tiring, it's complex, but it is a one subject we cannot avoid. So it's important to understand that diversity is all that. And I'll come back to this issue right now. What is inclusion? Inclusion, and you know that for all these years we were talking about managing diversity, tolerating diversity, embracing diversity. The last eight or so years, language has changed. We are talking now about diversity and inclusion. Why? Because people have recognized that you can have a team that's as diverse as the rainbow but there could be people who are not included. So you cannot talk only about diversity. Creating it's important, but inclusion is the key that unlocks the potential that diversity gives you. So diversity, inclusion is a call to action. It doesn't happen automatically. While diversity, as long as you have more than two people, more than one person, you have diversity. Even if they were to be both white women, you have diversity. One might be married, one might be uh, from a different country. So. Inclusion is the one we need to look at because it's a call to action. It is being constantly vigilant, looking out for the not so obvious in your team, looking out for the not so obvious and open to a variety of ideas and perspectives. It is about actively inviting those who are excluded in your team. I'm talking about where we're working in our different companies, actively inviting those who are in excluded and using your power and influence to include them. Ensuring that everyone is allowed to bring their best. I mean, you spend a lot of time and money uh, on pro programs like this because you are doing it in order that the workplace should benefit, that there needs to be, uh, you need to maximize business success. It's not for the sake of people must just like each other after this. The last bullet point is equally important, that it is also those who are excluded. I often say in my workshops, it's also about choosing to include yourself. Uh, are you, do you know there are people who forever exclude themselves? You say, let's go for a bribe, whatever, say, whatever, I'm not joining you. There are people who exclude themselves. However, there are people who are excluded as well. So the last bullet point talks about when you are the one who's excluded, you must choose to include yourself, number one, or you must also speak up when you are excluded. Now, what do I mean by speaking up? By speaking up, I'm not necessarily saying, automatically tomorrow you'll therefore be excluded, but you'll be included. But at least you'll sleep with your conscience that I've raised it, that in my team, if I'm the only one with a, a, a two-year-old child and I have to drop a child wherever and all your meetings are forever at seven o'clock, had I spoken up, you might have just said, okay, we'll have a meeting at eight o'clock uh, and I have spoken because people don't wake up thinking 
for you. Is it true? I mean, I, I, you don't wake up thinking for me, you thinking about your entry and whatever. So sometimes it's possible that I can be in your team and you do not know that I'm excluded. However, once somebody has spoken up, once you know that these are the areas of exclusion, this is where the cracks come. What are you doing with the fact that people have surfaced the, the issues of exclusion? So the first one is how we define diversity. The second one is how we define inclusion. So as I said that it is therefore never advisable to say let's not talk about race because it is part and parcel of our history in our country. In fact, I like Edgar Tolle's um, uh, um, quotation there where he says, whatever you fight, you strengthen and what you resist persists. That if you try and shove it under the carpet, if you try and plaster the cracks, it will find you. Uh, it will be there. When we postpone a difficult conversation, it will find you. Why? Because it is intuitive to run away from what we call the noise and counterintuitive to confront it. Because if, 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 if I have it my way, I would say, please don't bother me with any conflict. However, when there are flags, red flags within your organization, it says, let us talk, let us find way, ways in which we can uh, resolve this. So, Diversity and inclusion for me, if you want a sustainable and a good strategy of this, you have to look at it at what we call the H3 model, the head, heart and the hands. The head, that is where you say the intellectual buy-in is that you can come in your organization, you say we need 30% black people, 25% uh, women or whatever percentage that uh, you put together as targets and you can put it beautifully in your spreadsheet and say these are our targets. In all my 18 years in this field, I've never seen spreadsheets transform any organization. So you can put it there, and what is more important is the red line. That yes, we are going to, to and I've often seen CEOs that say, let's say I was an HR director in your company, Nini, you know the targets that we want, you even have the budget, go get them. Go get them, you are jumping from blue to green. You know, you can get, you can get anyone. The getting might not be as a problem. But it's like, what are you doing in the middle? And the middle is where the difficulty is. How does inclusion look like? This is where the heart and emotional buy-in is. And uh, we talk more around it in our, uh, our workshop session. So that model is critical if you want an, a lasting solution to your transformation strategy. Now we've been talking about unconscious bias. And what is unconscious bias? It is defined as hidden, the operative word being hidden. Hidden inclination or preference that prevents judgment from being balanced or even-handed. The fact that there's the word judgment there, when I interview in a panel, I've got to judge whether it's this candidate or that. So judgment itself is fact, is not a problem. The problem is when it is not even-handed because I'm not even aware. Now, the new science of bias says, bias does not make us bad people. It makes us human. All of us, all the 1,500 plus one here, we all have biases. We all have what I call these invisible suitcases that we carry with us inside. When I talk to you, when we interact in our company, I'm talking from my suitcase, you are talking from your suitcase, whatever that is the baggage that is in there. We all have our biases. The person who looks like me, talks like me, I'm more inclined to think that, you know, she knows my, even if she doesn't, you know, that's just what bias does. So we need to be aware of that. And we're talking more about the unconscious 
conscious one. The, the red line talks about the explicit, which is the conscious bias. That one is straightforward. If I'm a racist and I'm a sexist and I know it, that we're not addressing that today. It needs its own three-day workshop. We are talking here about the unconscious one, where, where one is not aware. And also, as you know, that stereotypes, you can have positive and negative ones. You can have positive and negative biases. You know, my son goes to a Greek school, and they're quite diverse. He's got one of his, his best friend is Indian. So they were having a math test three weeks ahead, and she says, Mom, we are just chatting. I know Aiden is his friend. Say, I know Aiden is going to nail it. So I said, what do you mean, Muteo? It's like three, just study. Um, and he says, but he's Indian. He's going to nail it. <laughs> sometimes when you listen, sometimes you have positive biases. And I mean, it's not a bad bias to say Indians are always good with mess or Asians. But for me, maybe I must take him to that paper uh, app, paper video app, because, you know, rather than rely on that, you need to say, you need to study. You can't say, because he's Indian, he has to get 90, you'll get 70. So sometimes, even the kids, you must listen to the kids, what they believe around some of the so-called positive biases might be not bad towards other people, but to themselves is also not good. So here we're talking more about the negative ones. It is about managing our biases. That's an that's a issue. Not that we don't have biases. It's a waste of time to argue that we don't have biases, but how do we manage them so that when we work together, we therefore create an environment where we can do the best of why we were employed here. So I said whenever we talk about unconscious bias, there are two terms I'd like you to remember, micro inequities and microaggressions. The fact that they are called micro, already you can see that they are small small micro inequities are, are, are defined as small behaviors of prejudice um, that either single out a certain individual or individuals based on their unchangeable characteristics. So if you single out women, if you single out black people, if you single out gay people, if you single out whatever the minority groups uh, or so-called minority groups that we talk about. So micro inequity are small behaviors, but they impact on them. How I would like to explain this uh, is that imagine this brick. Imagine small water droplets dripping on a brick. You know, for a while, they won't have much impact on a brick except making the brick wet. But if these droplets continue on the same brick, on the same brick, believe me, there'll be a hole on that brick. Because the issue here about some of the micro inequities is not that when something happens once or twice, it's probably, it's like somebody maybe is making a mistake. Their problem is when they happen repeatedly. And I have worked a lot in organizations. I do not believe there are adults who can come into the workplace and want to be spoon-fed. When people raise issues of micro-inequities, or sometimes macro, but if people raise issues of micro-inequities, they raise them because they are experiencing them as problems. They are experiencing the impact of that behavior. So it is not like people want to create this workplace as if it's some kind of welfare. In one workshop, one participant said, do you want to create a welfare state in this company? It's not that. The fact that all of you have a degree and you are qualified in your field is that you came and joined the organization because you want to do work. In the process, when you experience the micro inequities, that's where the problem is. And some examples of micro inequities that we've gotten from uh, some participants. Number one, introducing one, one colleague with glowing accolades. 
and another with just the name. So I say, we go to a client, I say, this is Kevin, he studied at Stellenbosch, oh, he's so great, you know, he's, he's really done a lot and he's grown within the company, and then this is Kathy. <laughs> it's like the same meeting, I'm, I'm the boss, introducing both people, and there were, sometimes people are not even aware, you know, I'm focusing so much on Kevin, and like, and this is Kathy, what is Kathy supposed to do? To say, okay, please listen to me, I also studied at whatever. So this is what we tend, we are not aware of some of these little things that we do. Or, when a person makes a point in a meeting, it's often glossed over, but when another makes the same point later in the same meeting, it's hailed as a great idea. Like, you know, I said something 15 minutes ago, and then, and then somebody else says it. And then you say, wow, wow, that's good. So I'm sitting there, but, but I said that 15 minutes ago. And remember, this is where the micro iniquity comes. If you raise it, it's like you are petty, isn't it? It's like, get a life. But get a life, I've, I'm watching you. I'm watching you, this is not fair. The micro, it makes it so difficult for victims of micro iniquity to constantly remind people that this is how it impacts on me. And we talk about them, the fact that they have a name called micro iniquity actually shows that it's important. Uh, am I left with two minutes? Okay. Um, <laughs> the other one, taking, taking credit for someone else's work. You can see that poor lady say, wow, here are people running on and I thought I contributed here. Do you know these things happen where you can see that you're not even being acknowledged at all and you contributed there. Excluding someone from socializing opportunities. Um, if you don't know the power of informal networks, informal networks are powerful in, in either enabling and accelerating your success in an organization or you know, uh, um, stalling your success. And it has nothing to do with qualifications. We are assuming we are already qualified. It is those little things that happen. Or interrupting someone mid-sentence or abruptly cutting them off by giving others full hearing and attention. And often when this happens is that if I do not believe that I can get enough from her and she's speaking, in a way, I said, you know, first of all, I say, I know what you want to say. You finish the sentence for her, or you even interrupt her, uh, you just, and it is so disheartening. It is so dis demotivating, and it happens. People actually give us these examples. Or repeatedly cancelling meetings on someone. Well, once or twice is fine, but repeatedly, repeatedly cancelling, people start looking at, what is wrong with me? How come he can see other people? or a preference for certain universities and putting others down. Hmm. I observed this thing. I was in a meeting and the CEO was saying, somebody was talking and he said, that's what you get from UCT. <laughs> so, so me who comes from KZN and all that, what, what am I supposed to? You know, sometimes people don't see that by me. Yes, I saw in the historical analysis that Adrian shared that you are saying there's some differences in terms of universities, but I'm already here. I'm already working in this. Whatever you're thinking about, my, I'm already here. So by saying that doesn't help. So it's really about how do we ensure that we work with that. So uh, questioning the competence of one group and uh, uh, treating another differently, constantly using the phrase, whenever you're talking about talk, uh, appointing black people or women, in the same sentence, then you say, but remember it has to be on merit. 
But have you heard that? That it's almost like those two belong together. That when you talk employing black people or women, you have to add, but remember it has to be on, uh, on merit. That is a narrative that we do not want. So, and I know I've covered quite a lot in a speedy Gonzalez way, but uh, the workshops I will be uh, getting a little bit more in detail around what do we do? Because you could ask a question, so what? Are we supposed to be working on eggshells? Are we supposed to, you are creating this rigid workplace? No. This, I talk globally as well, this is a topic that many organizations see as important. There are ways of working around this and creating a workable workplace that you all want to be in. Thank you. Thanks, Nene. I wanted to actually mention as well that she has just published a book. Um, it's called A Journey of Diversity and Inclusion in South Africa Guidelines for Leading Inclusively, and it's going to be available downstairs. It has a forward by Justice Edwin Cameron. So I must say I look forward to seeing that. So I said at the beginning that I, I, I want you all to be revitalizing the way that you think in this session. So how are we doing so far? So whether it's about ASSA's strategic commitment to the, and the activities, it's about the demographics of our profession and where we're going, or how unconscious bias affects you, I hope that you have had some cause for introspection. But this doesn't stop here. As Nene mentioned, she's going to be running the workshops throughout the next two days, and you have six opportunities to participate in a workshop. You can register online or at the registration desk, and space is limited, as Ranti mentioned, so please register quickly. I don't know what happened to my slides. <laughs> But it's apt for me to bring up the, um, let me go forward. It's apt for me to bring up the subject of CPD. I'm so impressed with how many of you have embraced the outcomes-based CPD approach. I found the process of developing a personal development plan to be really useful. And I hope that you can recognize that in terms of the various roles that you play, it's very important to consider the gaps that you need to fill. So, you'll have seen from the recent communication from Council that we're encouraging everyone to adopt transformation as a theme in your personal development plan. We definitely all have something that we can explore on, we can act upon, or we can seek to understand in this regard. I must say, I do find it very difficult to talk about this topic. I'm nervous that I'm going to inadvertently say something that causes offence. I guess it's part of having a Murphy in my name. But I do feel that it's important that I try and to have these difficult conversations and to not maintain the status quo. So I think the workshops that we're offering are a great opportunity for you to engage more actively on this. I know I'm going to. So I want to encourage you to please give us your feedback on what we have been doing and what we could be doing better. So to end off with, let me just share with you what I'm hoping for. Here's my blue sky. First of all, an education curriculum that develops actuaries who have knowledge and skills that are relevant to South Africa, and which incorporates the practices and developments in Africa in a way that encourages diversity in terms of thinking and promotes pride and incentivizes people to be innovative. Secondly, no gender or racial differentiation in the progression through the exams, with accessible to support, support to everyone who wants to meet the standards that are needed for the work that we do as actuaries. And finally, a professional community engaged with the challenging people, the challenges that people are facing, 
and assisting where we can with risk protection. So let's take it one step at a time. I hope that by the end of this convention, you will have engaged in an active conversation on the topics that we've covered here this morning. And I hope that you will have that conversation with someone who doesn't necessarily look or sound like you. And it, of course, goes without saying that you'll hopefully take the opportunity to attend the workshops. My one-year time horizon is that you will actively participate in these initiatives and also in a survey that we'll be conducting a year from now to assess our progress and to assess whether we are being a welcoming profession. But lastly, I'd like to say thank you to all the volunteers who've contributed to the various initiatives I've touched on this morning, and most especially the Transformation Committee under the stewardship of Peter Withy, the ASA Academy, and of course those who are working on keeping our education material relevant. I'd like to thank my fellow speakers, Nene and Adrian, and also the team that helped to put this together. And I would particularly mention Dave Strugnell, Nalen Naidu, Abalelu Gagazi, and of course, Guy Kennels. Thanks very much. Back to you, Ranti. Wow, that's a fascinating start to the convention. Fascinating insights, and I think the message targets each and every one of us. Let's give a round of applause again to our speakers. Thanks, Roseanne, Adrienne, and Nene. My fellow actual professionals, we as a country have social challenges. We are all aware of them, but they are a product of our history. Many years of harm and horrible inhumane treatment, exclusion. Social cohesion is a possibility. It is not impossible. Let us embrace it, let us work at it, and each and every single one of us has a role to play. Pre-1994, people of all races and genders come, came together for a cause. So if you look at the struggle history, it wasn't just African people. We had people from the African community, Bias Nadia, people from the Jewish community, Joslovo, Lovo, Islam, Ahmed Katrada, and so forth. So we can continue on the journey that was started to realize a South Africa that was envisaged in 1994. Thank you very much for your attention. This brings an end to the plenary session this morning. We have got 20 minutes and that break, it's really a transfer break to go to the concurrent sessions. It's not a tea break. Tea break will follow. Uh, in fact, it's, li it's lunch, so there's, there's no tea break. So go straight to the concurrent sessions. <laughs> you've got five choices, and I hope you've already made your choices as to where to go. Uh, thank you very much. A round of applause to our speakers again, and thank you. <laughs> <laughs>